Episode 33, Old School Fighting. One historical mindset I continue to explore is that of the feudal Japanese warrior. You see, I practice a koryu or an old Japanese martial tradition. My training demands that I constantly try to tap into this way of thinking. Some of you listening might think what I do is a waste of time. Why bother practicing how to use a sword to kill someone when modern warriors use firearms? Never mind the strange clothing and odd rituals that go along with the practice. Why do I even want to know how to kill someone in the first place? Surely there are better ways to spend one's time. Before I continue, please keep in mind that the views I express in this podcast are my own, unless unless I specifically reference someone else. These are not necessarily the views of my koryu or its membership. I take full responsibility for the information discussed here. Please also understand that despite training in a koryu for a number of years, I am still very much a beginner and a junior compared to the great names in the Western koryu scene. My experience and knowledge is simply that, my own experience and knowledge. It would be arrogant of me to think I knew it all, so please take what I say with some scepticism. Alice Amder writes in his book, Old School, that some of the most dedicated practitioners of the traditional Japanese martial arts in the 21st century are non-Japanese. He continues to say that we are caught in a dilemma, particularly if we are no longer residing in Japan or never lived there at all. Beyond the combative tactics we study, how much of traditional Japanese culture, hundreds of years out of date, should we learn and maintain? Anyone that practices the koryu pujitsu or old school Japanese martial traditions are faced with this question, myself included. Amda makes some more remarks about this challenge. We have a difficult, if not impossible, task in trying to understand the early practitioners of Japanese martial traditions, whether we are Japanese or not, because the true nature of a bushi's service is hard for modern individuals to understand. Modern society, or human, modern human society, has changed to such an incredible degree that much of what we claim to know about our predecessors is mere fantasy. Many in the West romanticise the Japanese warrior as some sort of enlightened being, that through austere training, such men became wise men of sagacity, morality and humility. In truth, the warrior culture of Japan was, at its height, flamboyant, grandiose, autocratic, feudal, and arrogant. Romanticism is not sufficient as a means for understanding any sort of aggression, much less organised training for violence. End quote. Tobin Threadgill and Shingo Ogami also tackle this conundrum in their book Shindo Yoshinru History and Technique. The book further explains the challenges as deshi, or student, of these types of martial art faces. The level of dedication required to be a student of a koryu dojo is extreme, yet many people who profess interest in koryu are unprepared for such a demanding undertaking. Joining a koryu school requires a commitment to the long-term pursuit of structured and uncompromising study. Koryu study is a discipline, not a hobby." 
You see, training in Koryu is not just about the physical movements, but also the social structure within the school. The headmaster of the school has absolute authority. Unlike in a modern martial art where de democratic systems are in place, in a Koryu, the headmaster is the only authority, like it or not. The headmaster of the school oversees not only training, but who receives teaching licenses, the release of information to the public, and decides who stays and who goes. The maintenance of traditions are just as important as learning the combative nuances of sword work. If you're starting to think this could be like a cult, you'd not be the only one. Except it isn't. It's just Japanese. At least how things used to be done hundreds of years ago. The headmaster approves everything a teacher or student undertakes in relation to the study of the art, but that doesn't include life outside of this. My dedication is absolute within the context of my training and interactions with fellow practitioners, but I get to decide how the rest of my life runs, unlike in a cult. In fact, I would say that some of the most independent, strong-willed people I have met practice koryu. We all volunteered to be part of this crazy world. We weren't coerced into it. Another aspect that must be adhered to to fully understand the mindset of the feudal Japanese warrior is that of loyalty. Not just the lip surface variety either, but the adherence to traditions and obedience towards seniors done with sincerity. We don't get to choose which parts of the training we practice. We have to learn it all. Everyone will come face to face with what that means for them. Could you ask a lot of an individual, someone who has a family, a job, and other pressures in their lives. I feel this tension constantly in my own life, and on a good day, I strike a balance, and on a bad day, I get it wrong and deal with the consequences. As stated in the Shindo Yoshinru book, loyalty in a koryu must be a selfless endeavour and remain an immutable commitment to your teacher, your fellow students, and the ruha itself. End quote. In fact, in some ways, the challenge of maintaining the martial school and its traditions become more challenging as the responsibility increases, and I dare say that no one feels this more acutely than the headmaster, him or herself. In some cases, the koryu lives or dies based on the decisions they make in their generation. We are all merely custodians of these traditions and are obliged to do our best to keep these old schools alive. What makes this more challenging is that every koryu is different. The demands are different, the traditions differ, and the degree of loyalty differs. Dave Lowry's article titled Promise and Peril, The Potential of Following Multiple Koryu, has this to say. Koryu, each of them, have distinctive personalities. More to the point, they pervasively inform the long-time practitioner and member. The personalities of the Ru go beyond the combative intent of its teachings mentioned previously, they are the collective psyche of the Ru. End quote. The structure of the Ru is such that a bond may form that is not unlike a family or brotherhood, an in-group, if you will. This group has to decide to let you in. There is an initiation process, and once you are part of the group, if you break the rules, you are out. Someone could be involved in Kuryu for years and never receive a teaching license because the headmaster of the school sees no need. It's not personal. It's about what is good for the school, not the individual. The headmaster of the school is not going to hand out a teaching license when he has enough people in a certain area already teaching. Koryu do not function by having a high number of students. 
In fact, it is counterproductive. Teaching and learning happens in an intimate teacher-student level. Mass instruction is not ideal. This brings me on to my next point. The group is more important than the individual in a koryu. This is perhaps easier to understand for a Japanese native, but not for someone in the West, where the individual is most important. Group cohesion and the goals of the ru are paramount. If you rock the boat and don't change your ways after being admonished, you will be told, not asked, to leave. Your personal views and beliefs are secondary to the goals of the ru. Now it's a tough road for those of us that get involved with this sort of training, but there must be some reason to stick at it, right? By training as these people did, we can get a glimpse of how they thought. We mimic the movements of the past to get an insight into their mindset. It is a long-term quest into the physical, metaphysical and psychological nuances of a martial culture that endures after hundreds of years. If you can put up with everything I've talked about so far, then you may find a richness and complexity to the lessons that can be learned. The human body hasn't changed for thousands of years. It can only move in a finite number of ways. Just like today, people of the past fought by striking, locking joints, throwing and grappling. An MMA fighter is using movements that were probably not that dissimilar to a samurai tussling with an enemy on the battlefield of medieval Japan. The differences only start to become clear when we introduce context. The MMA fighter can safely assume that his opponent will not pull a knife on him or that other opponents will turn up to help in the fight. He or she also knows that they are unlikely to die in the bout as a referee is on hand to keep the fight safe. The fighter can tap out or the referee can call the fight over when it is deemed prudent to do so. The feudal Japanese warrior has different assumptions. Weapons are not only assumed, but obvious. He will kill or be killed. Armour could be a consideration and terrain a factor. So how does a 21st century Koryu practitioner train for a fight that will never come? How do we create conditions that may simulate the correct responses or feelings as our feudal counterparts? The answer lies in prearranged two-person forms called kata. Nowadays the word kata has become a bit of a loaded term. Kata can be found in karate, in iairo, and many other non-Japanese martial arts where they are called forms. Taekwondo has forms, certain Chinese martial arts have forms, so when the word kata is used, some people make assumptions based on what they already know about the word. This can be misleading. Even after I explain koryu kata to you today, you'll still be trying to dovetail my words into your own preconceived ideas. But I will try to get the idea across as best as I can. Try as I might, the only way you can truly appreciate what I'm talking about is to experience it for yourself. To help me explain how kata work in koryu pujitsu, I'm going to do what I often do on this podcast. I'm going to use the words of people who know far more than I do. In this instance, I will turn to Carl Friday's writing in his article, Kabbalah in Motion, Kata and Pattern Practice in the Traditional Buge. Here we go. Few facets of Japanese martial art have been as consistently and ubiquitously misunderstood, even by those who practice them, as kata. Variously described as a kind of ritualized combat, exercises in aesthetic movement, a means to sharpen fundamentals such as balance and coordination, 
a type of moving meditation, or a form of training akin to shadow boxing, Carter embraces all of these characterizations, but its essence is captured by none of them. Carter, in fact, defies succinct explanation. End quote. And I would have to agree, even in the short time I have been training, I find it difficult to fully explain the experiences I have had with kata training in the koryu I practice. In most cases, the students of a koryu work in pairs when performing kata. One partner will be the one who initiates the confrontation. They will be the attacker, while the other responds according to the prearranged movements built into that particular kata. Generally, the attacker will be the senior practitioner of the two, and the one receiving the attack is the junior. Of course, during a training session, these roles may be reversed for various reasons, but the idea is that the person attacking knows the kata better and can work with the junior at an intensity that challenges the other but does not overwhelm them. I return to Friday's writing. One of the key points to be understood about partner practice is the traditional boogie, oh sorry, in the traditional boogie, is that it serves as the core of training and transmission. In modern Japanese martial arts such as kendo or judo, kata is often only one of several more or less co-equal training methods. But in the older ruha, pattern practice was and is the pivotal method. Many schools teach only through pattern practice. Others employ adjunct learning devices such as sparring, but only to augment kata training, never to supplant it. The importance of pattern practice comes from the belief that it is the most efficient vehicle for passing knowledge from teacher to student. On one level, Aruha's kata form a living catalogue of its curriculum and a syllabus for instruction. Both the essence and the sum of Aruha's teachings, the postures, techniques, strategies and philosophy that comprise the school's kambala, are contained in its kata. End quote. Kata are even more than this though. A martial tradition must be embodied. By the practitioner, that means simple theory is not enough. I'm sure many of you have had moments on the mat or in the training hall where your instructor has explained to you a concept and you think you understand. Then years later, it dawns on you what they were trying to convey. The most important lessons must be experienced directly by doing. I've heard it said within my own school that kata change you from the outside in. You can spend years working on a particular kata until you suddenly realize you're doing things subconsciously in line with the principles of the Ru. Carl Friday asks us to consider the Japanese word Chihan. Commonly translated as master instructor, the term literally means master and model. The Koryu instructor leads by example, facilitating the student's development but not lecturing. This reinforces the idea that the student must be doing the movements to gain any understanding of the kata. Observing or simply being told is not enough. I know in my own martial school you can start to see a student get better because they start to move and look like a student of our school, not just someone trying to monkey the movements. Of course, there is more to it than the physical act of fighting. The human mind also has not changed that much for thousands of years. Many Koryu were founded by people that had experienced combat and survived. These people knew the toll this sort of violence could have on the minds of warriors. They realised the importance of preparing the minds as well as the bodies of their students. Some of this knowledge has also been incorporated into the training of the Ru. 
This too can be found in kata practice. A word that is often used in my school is intent. It is important, especially once you know a particular kata, that you provide the correct mindset to the movements. Alice Amda talks about how this intent differs from koryu to koryu. He describes arakiru as having the mentality of a wolverine, low to the ground and tenacious, while another ru may be more like a doberman, more upright but just as dangerous. I spoke about stress inoculation in episode 28. This is the slow introduction of a stressor so that the fear response becomes reduced over time. Correct kata training does this well. The first time a student is paired up against someone else with a wooden sword, they may hesitate as they try to remember the movements they are to make and the correct timing required so they do not get hit. Eventually the movements become second nature, but their partner is still moving at a reduced speed and power. This intensity slowly increases, forcing the student to respond under greater and greater stress until they get to the point that their body almost moves reflexively to the stimulus of their opponent bearing down on them. In my experience, this is not a directly linear progression. Some of the kata I have been doing a long time, and when someone who is junior to me attacks, I can perform the movements with fluidity and ease. Yet my instructor can stand before me, and even though it is the same kata, he can flummox me with his own ferocity and intent on the attack. I see it more as cyclic rather than linear, but overall my body is taking on more and more of the ruse principles. The intensity can keep increasing beyond a wooden bokken. If these are switched out for real swords, the attention to detail goes up even more. There is nothing like the flash of steel to get you focused. In some ru, body armour and shinai are introduced to allow students to really go for it. Those blows still hurt despite the armour. Even in these situations, the principles must not be compromised and the limitations of such training must be acknowledged and addressed. And I must stress that this sort of training does not supersede standard kata training. Overall, kata training is uncomfortable. It's never easy. Every time I bow into my training partner, there is a feeling of uncertainty, even though we both know the steps in the kata we are about to perform. Either one of us could move slightly differently, slightly faster, change an angle, change the distancing. Sometimes this is intentional, sometimes it is by accident. But because we are using wooden training swords, a mistake can hurt. That tension is important. It builds character and strength of will. It intrigues me that military veterans understand the mindset Kordu practitioners are trying to develop. I've spoken in earlier episodes about the crossover between the modern military person and the Kordu practitioner. Episode 23 covers this exclusively. Neville Johnson, who I have had on the podcast a couple of times, has seen combat while serving in the British Army. When I discuss the mentality of my cordial training with him, he gets it, without even stepping on the mat. He doesn't have to. He knows what it is to face violence and to fight to the death. I know fellow deshi who have, or still do, serve in the military. They too can see the crossover. My cordial practice echoes a warrior mentality, due to the shadows of warriors from a violent past. This is, in part, what draws me to this practice. I find the psychological aspects fascinating, and it is therefore no surprise to those of you that have been listening to me for a while that this interest, in part, led me to creating this podcast. Another aspect of koryu training that is different to many other modern martial arts is the feeling of being part of something larger than oneself. 
To be part of a koryu is to be a link in a chain of practitioners that reaches back into the past and also forward into the future with those that are yet to come. There is a sense of purpose in this idea. I am training so that I can pass the knowledge on to someone else. Who then in turn can pass this knowledge on? It is quite the responsibility. I must learn all that I can to the best of my ability so I can pass on the knowledge correctly. It's not about winning competitions or trophies. Not that there's anything wrong with that in and of itself. It's just not the goal of Kōryu training. As mentioned by Hunter B. Armstrong in his article, The Kōryu Experience, a true Kōryu is a living entity, one that subsumes the individual. For the individual, it is a relationship with a living legacy and with the people within that heritage, living, dead, and yet to be born. End quote. Not everyone who trains in a koryu becomes a teacher, and only a few will receive the full transmission of the ru. But everyone who trains is part of the process of passing the knowledge on. Those who do not receive teaching licenses are still useful as training partners. The very act of training is keeping the tradition alive. This can be difficult for Westerners to reconcile. Again, this goes back to being selfless in this pursuit. It's not about you being at the top of the pecking order. In fact, you could be the best technician in the entire school. But if you have the wrong attitude or lack the necessary teaching or administrative skills, the headmaster of the school may prepare someone else to take the mantle. And that is absolutely his or her right, just as the headmaster before them had to make that same decision. Before I finish up talking about training in a koryu, I wish to talk about elitism. You know, the idea that someone is superior to someone else due to what they know or do. Over the years, from time to time, koryu practitioners have been called elitist by those who do not practice these old ways. Consider what I have just discussed. A small group of people exist. They aren't really interested in sharing what they know to outsiders. There is an initiation process, and even if they let you in, they might eventually kick you out if you break their rules. Some of these traditions are dying. Their numbers are small, apparently through lack of interest, yet they won't change their ways. It could be considered a form of snobbery, a feeling that they are better than you. And if I am completely honest, I did feel kind of special when I first joined. However, now that I am looking from the inside out, I can see why these decisions have been made. Consider the fact that these old Japanese martial traditions are close to dying out. It's important to protect the knowledge and entrust it to the right kind of person. We are preserving a cultural legacy. We know in many other martial arts of charlatans, because they have had a photo of a particular instructor, or took a few classes with said instructor, that they then start up their own school under the guise of a legitimate teacher of that particular art. These people are often charismatic, probably have some technical skill, but don't actually know much of the martial art they claim to be an expert in. People who don't know any better then join this fraud. They think they are doing the real thing and tell others about it. Before long, you have a group of people doing something that sits under the name of the stolen martial art. It is no longer what it once was. For fear of being dramatic, the art has been ruined. To a member of the koru, this is a portrayal of the hard work, blood and sweat countless earlier generations have put in. It also portrays the current practitioners of the koryu who have spent years in study and sacrificed much to train. Considering that the new guy in a legitimate koryu could have been training for years, you can see how feathers could get ruffled if someone starts saying they are something they are not. 
So we don't take any chances. Any videos you see of Kuri are often of those that are taken at public demonstrations. These are kata used for public consumption. You never see the whole curriculum of a kōryu. Even those of us in a kōryu are given access to parts of the curriculum slowly and deliberately. Dave Lowry wrote an excellent article about this phenomenon called Bicycles and Budo, a look at kōryu snobbery. As usual, he sums it up much better than I ever could, but the impression I get from his writing is that it's not so much that people practicing kōryu are snobs, it's more a misunderstanding from the outsider's perspective. We don't think what we do is the best. In fact, most of us practice some other form of modern martial art as well. Here in New Zealand, those involved in my kōryu practice are also karataka, judoka, kendoka, and modern jiu-jitsu folk. I myself continue teaching Aikido. I would argue that having people experienced in other modern martial arts brings a richness to the training that I might not get if we were all new to martial arts. We all know what it is like to persevere through austere training. We all know what it takes um, to get really good at something and that it takes time. We all know we have different strengths and weaknesses in our training. With all that being said, I never tire of my kōryu training. It is such a rich and complex experience that it will take the rest of my active life to fully understand what I am doing. I am constantly discovering more as I train. Okay, if you have a pressing question you'd like to ask me or an idea you might like me to discuss, please contact me through my email, mushashugyopodcast at gmail.com or find me on Instagram with the same name. Also, please appreciate that I do this podcast as a hobby. I put my own money into keeping it running. So if you have a few dollars to spare, pop over to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com backslash mushashugyopodcast with a capital M. I would like to end today's discussion with a quote from Takamura Yukioshi, second headmaster of the Obata-Takamura line of Shindo Yoshinru. He eloquently sums up what I've been trying to clumsily say this whole episode. There are those of us who are committed to and accept the sacrifices of learning and teaching a complete bujitsu or buge. We are not better than our friends who choose one part of a bujitsu or who practice modern martial arts. We practice a complete system because we believe and hope that there is a bonus worthy of the sacrifice. It does exist. It is understanding the technical and historical core of a martial school. A true bujitsu or buge tradition is a cohesive puzzle. Every separate aspect combines to strengthen the whole and complement each other. The realisation that individual techniques are not the art, but rather a temporary reflection of a deeper set of concepts and martial strategies is liberating. This allows us to embrace and understand the okuden, secrets of the art. Mastery of these principles allows a martial school to grow from generation to generation, from old applications to new. Through the okuden, we grasp the intellectual genius that appears after years of training in a true bujitsu. It is like an old signature of many masters, each one visible on top of one another, each one part of a greater whole. This is what makes a ru, or school or style, a ru.